Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. New City Press is proud to announce that for the first time ever, all of St. Augustine's homiletical work is now available in the English language. Never before have English language preachers and teachers had at their disposal such a rich deposit of Augustine's homiletical insights. To find out more about these resources and discover more resources for preachers, please visit New City Press at newcitypress.com or just click the link in the show notes today. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Living Church Podcast. Preachers, teachers, and Christians across the globe have found the passionate, pastoral, and psychologically astute writings of St. Augustine of Hippo fresh and relevant century after century. New City Press asked themselves, um, why hasn't anyone produced a really rock star translation of all of Augustine's sermons in English? Of course, being a publishing company, they decided to do something about it. The latest in this series is a new translation of St. Augustine's homilies on the Gospel of John. On June 8th, the Living Church Institute co-hosted a masterclass and a live Q&A session with Rowan Williams and Augustine scholar John Cavadini, focusing specifically on Augustine as a preacher and what we can learn as preachers from him and, of course, on his homilies on John 6. And today, we are pleased to present the audio of this masterclass to you. And by the way, if you're keeping your eye on the Sunday lectionary, this is just in time for a month of preaching on the Gospel of John. We hope this will be enjoyable and a great resource to you. So kick back with a cup of coffee or tea, or if you are driving, please just watch the road and enjoy. Good morning, everyone. Good afternoon, good evening, good middle of the night to some of you, I'm sure. My name is Amber Noel, and I'm Associate Director 
of the Living Church Institute. And on behalf of New City Press, the Living Church, and the Alistair McGrath Institute, I want to extend a warm welcome to each and every one of you here this morning to our masterclass, Preaching the Gospel of John with St. Augustine. Now, without further ado, let's say hello to our guests and our moderator for today. First, I want to introduce you to our moderator. It is the Reverend Dr. Paul Colbert. He's the author of a book on Augustine's preaching, Augustine and the Cure of Souls, Revising a Classical Ideal. He's also co-editor of The Harp of Prophecy, Early Christian Interpretation of the Psalms. He is lecturer in the history of Christianity at Yale Divinity School, co-chair of the Augustine and Augustinianisms Group of the American Academy of Religion, and interim rector of All Saints Episcopal Church in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. Welcome, Paul. Our first guest is Dr. John C. Cavadini. He is professor of theology at Notre Dame, where he also serves as McGrath Cavadini Director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life. He specializes in patristic theology and its early medieval reception. He has served a five-year term on the International Theological Commission appointed by Pope Benedict XVI and received the Monica K. Helwig Award for Outstanding Contributions to Catholic Intellectual Life. Welcome, John. And our second guest today is the Most Reverend Dr. Rowan Williams. He served as Archbishop of Canterbury from 2002 to 2012 and then as Master of Maudlin College, Cambridge until 2020. He has just retired, supposedly. And he has published numerous books on theology and spirituality, including On Augustine and Christ, the Heart of Creation. And he will have a new volume of collected poems published later this year. So Paul, John, Rowan, we are so pleased to enjoy your company today and to share this time with you. Paul, take it away. Well, how exciting this is. Uh, and I'm particularly excited to be able to have this conversation with uh, John and Rowan because uh, much of what I've learned about Augustine and about Christianity and uh, many other things has been from both of them. And uh, so anyway, it's a great privilege for me to, to be here. Uh, hey, for all of you, and there are a lot of you, uh, expect from this next two hours to learn something about Augustine and theology, yes, but also especially for you, know, you ministers, clergy, priests out there, uh, expect some practical advice, maybe even a new model of preaching that might be uh, a bit easier and, and more effective. We'll see. First of all, about the topic, you know, Augustine and sermons. Um, our, uh, our sponsor, one of our sponsors here, New City Press, has, with these, uh, oh, these volumes, uh, has uh, published, they set out some time ago to publish all of Augustine's writings in English for the first time in history. It's never happened. And, and so there's more Augustine available in English now than there ever has been. And it's, uh, and particularly the sermons, which are long neglected. And we have more Augustine than any other ancient speaker. There's no larger body of oratory from anyone. They were, these sermons were taken down by stenographers and they really don't show signs of heavy editing by Augustine. So it's very close to hearing his actual voice. And he produced these sermons over the course of 40, nearly 40 years. So in like, how many are there? Well, you know, counting 205 expositions on the Psalms, 
124 on John, which we're going to talk about more, uh, 10 on the first epistle of John, and then there's some 559 in this popular sermon collection, uh, which is published in like 10 large volumes like this uh, by New City Press. And then there's 26 so-called new sermons from Augustine and translated in uh, the 11th volume of the series they tacked on. And there are even uh, nine, I guess we would call them brand new sermons of Augustine that uh, haven't yet been translated into English, but New City Press will get to it. Uh, So all in all, when you add it up, it's uh, close to a thousand sermons of the of, of Augustine that we have. And it's a treasure, but it's a lot to internalize and it is largely uh, new uh, to, to us. Uh, and so for this webinar, this masterclass, we've of course had to narrow it down and focus on it. And so what we chose to do was focus on John chapter six in his uh, sermons on John, largely because Well, for all you ministers who are following the Revised Common Lectionary, you're going to have four consecutive Sundays on on John 6. It's his John's Bread of Life discourse, and that's that's awesome. But hey, how do you have enough enough to say four weeks in a row? You know, all you who who do this for a living and a calling know that that can be difficult. So we want to help you with that. And... uh, and by the way, in addition to the sermon, if you, even if you've read all 124 sermons in the volume, new volumes on John, there are 40 plus, there are about 40 more sermons on John in uh, the popular sermons. So there's a lot of, Augustine talks about John a lot. It's really important to him. Uh, a lot of us leave Augustine's confession, leave Augustine off in his 40s when he writes the confessions. And what happens though is that he finishes the confessions around 401. Then he, around 406, he decides he's going to do, and he's going to preach consecutively through the whole gospel of John. Uh, And like many busy pastors, he only gets to John chapter four and has to set the, set it aside. But then he resumes in 414 and in 414, he only gets to chapter 12, sets the project aside again. And then he resumes again, 419 and then finishes the whole thing and so it's the first complete commentary in latin on uh, on john's gospel and it was important enough to augustine that he kept circling back around to it to make sure he got it done and the sermons for john chapter 6 that we're going to eventually get to are sermons 24 to 27 in the on john but this conversation will range a little more broadly than that But with few exceptions, older treatments of Augustine were written without mastery of the sermons. Or if the sermons are footnoted, they're just used to illustrate illustrate points made elsewhere. So today, listen for an Augustine that you may not know. Uh, One deeply involved in the business of living, and uh, and maybe despite his gloomy reputation, one that somehow has a real sense of joy, even in the midst of his involvement in the world. Um, So how we're gonna do this is we're gonna start with some brief prepared remarks from each of our speakers, and then we'll have informal 
question and answer sessions uh, from your questions. And so, uh, so Rowan, I'm going to hand it off to you. Thank you so much, Paul. And thank you to all those who've been involved in preparing today's event. It's a huge privilege to be part of this and a great delight to be talking about Augustine in the company of such distinguished scholars who have shaped my understanding of Augustine as well. So thank you and a delight to be here. What I'd like to do by way of introduction to today's business is to pick out three or four themes which Augustine brings to the fore in these sermons on John chapter 6. Themes which are widespread in his writing, but which have something to say both about Augustine's own theology and approach in general, and I suggest about our own theologizing and the particular kind of theology we do when we seek to preach. And as Paul has said, we're thrown in right at the beginning of this group of sermons when Augustine addresses the question of how the actions of Jesus are themselves words. Jesus is the embodiment of the word of God. Jesus communicates God. But that means that what Jesus does, as much as what Jesus says, becomes part of what is shared with us. Because Christ is himself the word of God, he says, even the deeds of the word are a word for us. Even the deeds of the word are a word for us. But of course, to talk about words means we have some interpretative work ahead. We can't just look at the deeds as bare happenings, so to speak. And a bit later on, he'll use an interesting phrase about that. The events described in John chapter 6 are not just happenings. If we do not first understand what was happening in that boat as referring to the church, then those things had no meaning but were just happenings. So part of what Augustine wants to drive home here is the understanding that the acts of Jesus are indeed a communication to us, and those acts are acts that are simultaneous contemporary with us now. So there, if you like, are the first two basic points that Augustine is taking for granted about his reading and his expounding of the gospel. What Jesus does as much as what Jesus says is part of the communication, and that communication is a contemporary matter. You could say preaching is really listening for what God is doing now in Christ through the medium of the scriptural witness to Christ. So the deeds are words, the gospel events are events about now. And that's why Augustine can say, again, looking at um, probably 25, he's writing about the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee in the boat. As the end of the world approaches, errors increase, terrors multiply, wickedness spreads, infidelity increases. Then the light, which John the Evangelist identifies clearly and often as charity, such that he even says the one who hates his brother is in darkness, the light is time and again extinguished. The darkness of hate among brothers spreads further day by day, and Jesus has not yet come. How can we tell that it is spreading? He quotes Matthew 
because evildoing thrives, the charity of many will grow cold. Darkness is increasing, and Jesus has not come. Growing darkness, charity growing cold, thriving wickedness, these are the waves tossing the boat about. Storms and winds are the cries of adversaries. That is what makes charity cold, what increases the waves and rocks the boat. And that, remember, is not just happening in the past. It's happening now. And so the meaning of the text is the meaning we hear now. What is Jesus doing and saying here and now? So preaching on a text like this is, as I said, uncovering what God is doing now through the medium of the witness to Jesus contained in the gospel text. All of that, of course, is bound up with that fundamental point that Augustine will always take for granted. Jesus is the literal fleshly embodiment of what God has to give to creation, the word. And the emphasis on the fleshliness of the incarnation and therefore the humility of the incarnation is a third theme that comes through here in these sermons as so often in Augustine's writing. And turn here to a passage a bit later in Homily 25 about the humility of the incarnation. Because to understand that God works in the humanity of Jesus is to understand the part of what God takes to himself in dealing with us is humility. Why are you proud, O man? For your sake, God was made humble. You might perhaps be ashamed to imitate a humble human being. Imitate at least a humble God. The Son of God came in a human being and was made humble. He instructed you to be humble. He did not instruct you to turn the human being that you are into an animal. God has become man. You, man, recognize that you are a human being. The sum of humility for you consists in knowing yourself. Wonderful passage, because it has so much to tell us about what humility does and doesn't mean. Humility is the embrace of our humanity. And that also means it's not the embrace of something subhuman. We don't, in humility, become less than we are. We become what we are. And humility doesn't mean self-abasement. It means the glad recognition that we are always dependent. We are always receiving. We are always being fed. The great paradox of the mystery of the Incarnation is that the God who needs nothing becomes a humble, dependent human being like us. And so for us to become both Christ-like and human is for us to abandon all ideas that we can be self-sufficient, that we can talk ourselves into language and love ourselves into life and will ourselves into being. We exist because we've received, something has been shared with us. And humility is above all that recognition that something has been shared with us to bring us to life. The way in which Augustine, like most early Christian writers, uses a term like pride has nothing to do with most of the meanings we give to that word now. For Augustine, pride means, to coin a phrase, means never having to say thank you. Humility is fundamentally the condition of being grateful 
and acknowledging that we are receiving life all the time, which is why, of course, this particular section of St. John's Gospel, with its emphasis on the nourishment that is given in the presence and the communication of Christ, why this section of the Gospel has so much to say to us and for us and about us. And then fourth, in and behind all this, of course, the assumption that Augustine is making all the time is that the word incarnate, the word embodied, transfigures us, rehumanizes us, because that word is God, fully, unequivocally, without any kind of compromise or qualification, identified with the source of all things. Christ in eternity as the Word, Christ in flesh as Jesus incarnate, does what the Father wants. His action, his will, his longing, we might analogically say, are all the action, the will, the longing of the Father. Christ wants what God wants and does what God does, without qualification. And without that rootedness in the eternal outflowing of the word from God, none of this would make any sense at all. We can depend on the gift Jesus gives and the consistency and the fidelity of that gift precisely because there is nothing that can change the act and the longing of God. So there are four little points which might help us get a bit of a perspective on the way Augustine approaches the texts that he's dealing with here. Christ's deeds are words. They are words addressed to us here and now and deeds affecting us here and now. They are deeds, they are actions grounded in that overwhelming paradoxical humility through which God relates to us, helping us to become human when we give up the dream of being more than human. And they are all rooted in the identity of the everlasting word with the everlasting father, the unity of father and son. Just two more brief thoughts before I hand over. One is, I've deliberately used just a moment ago, that language about desire, because of course Augustine really does write endlessly about the theme of desire in human beings rather than in God. And there's a very powerful and often quoted passage in the 26th homily, where Augustine is talking about what we need in the life of faith to keep us going. We need, he says, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, we need the kind of urgency, the kind of passionate hunger in our spirits that we're familiar with in the life of our bodies. The senses of the body have their pleasures, but then so does the mind and the heart. Give me a lover, and he will know by experience what I am saying here. Give me a man of desires. Give me someone who is hungry. Give me someone traveling thirsty through this wilderness and panting for the fountain of eternal life. You will know what I'm talking about. So here is Augustine really underlining the fact that Part of the point of expanding scripture at all is to kindle in us that sense of, if you like, the thirsty person wandering in the wilderness, the hungry, the desirous person, 
a person not prepared to settle for less than truth, less than reality, less than everlasting love. And his sermons are meant to bring that to the fore in us, to bring that to the surface in us. Preaching is not a matter of instruction. It's not a matter of dealing with what he calls cold-hearted so-and-sos. He wants us to be warm-hearted. He wants us to come out from hearing a sermon with more desire, more longing than when we went into it. And to be part of a congregation listening to a sermon, to be part of the body of Christ in its sacramental reality, is, as he says again later on in Homily 26, it's to be in the life of the Spirit, which is the life of charity. And he's very clear here as elsewhere that belonging in the body of Christ and sharing in the Spirit of Christ are absolutely inseparable. The visible body of Christ may be full of people who are at least as unimpressive, as muddled, sinful, and selfish as I am. But be there, turn up, because the Spirit will connect you with the life of the incarnate word in and through this group of people gathered to hear and receive the word of God, to hear a word which is also an action, to be made more rather than less human, to be in touch with the everlasting father through the everlasting word, and so to go out into a world with the task, not simply of converting, but above all of humanizing the world we belong to. That I think is what Augustine is preaching for, theologizing for, what the whole of his ministry and all that vast, complex and wonderful intellectual achievement, what that's all about. Thank you very much, I'll hand over. Oh, well, thank you, Rowan. And uh, uh, I'm sure our 1800 some registrants are already feeling like uh, they're longing for more. That was uh, that was fantastic. It's great, great start. And we're going to have uh, I'm glad we have more time to talk about this because you've given us a lot to start with. And then uh, and so then we'll have uh, bring John into conversation uh, with and with you. Hi, everybody. Thanks, Paul. And thank you to the sponsors for inviting me. I feel very honored to be a part of this. Um, Augustine is the theological love of my life, and I think I've spent my whole theological life trying to write like Rowan Williams. <laughs> so um, I feel very honored to be here, and thank you for that beautiful reflection, Rowan. So I love the idea that the lectionary this year invites us to the summer ahead as a summer of the bread of life, a summer of the Eucharist, a summer of love, if, if you will. Life in the summer, life after Pentecost, is the ecclesial life after all, the life of loving witness. Preaching the last of these homilies on John 6 on the Feast of St. Lawrence, <clears throat> Augustine shows the connection <clears throat> excuse me, between the witness of the martyr and the Eucharist. Lawrence had eaten and drunk well, Augustine says. May our brief time with St. Augustine on the bread of life help us, too, to eat and drink well so as to bring forth the fruits of loving witness in our world today. And I also have four points, since <laughs> there are four homilies. First point, Augustine the preacher presents scripture in the first place, I think, through its images. It's the preacher's job 
<clears throat> not to replace the images with concepts, but to release these images into the imagination of the listeners, where scripture intends for them to land. Scripture itself, for Augustine, is an act of proclamation. So preaching the scripture means enacting what scripture intends, namely to proclaim the gospel such that it might live anew in the hearts of the hearers. And this means inviting the hearers to let the images live anew in their imagination. This explains Augustine's fascination, for example, with the numbers in scripture. Perhaps it raised an eyebrow for readers here <clears throat> when Augustine matched the five loaves and two fishes that were multiplied to feed the many with the five books of the Pentateuch and the two Old Testament figures of the priest and king. Or when Augustine the preacher proposed that 25 or 30, the 25 or 30 furlongs that the disciples had rowed on the lake before Jesus came walking to them over the water represent the law because 25 is five times five and the fulfillment of the law because six is the number of completion. Six times five is 30 since the world was created in six days. Really, <laughs> one might be forgiven for thinking, but why not? Augustine doesn't insist on his particular construal, but only that the hearer not think that these numbers are simply empirical quantities without further resonance for the imagination and the heart. After all, the world was created in six days, according to Genesis 1, so the number six is always potentially a, a, an echo of that text. Go with the flow. Let the spirit work through the numeric symbolism, Augustine is saying. A fortiori, for the images which the Gospel of John so deliberately proposes, bread, food, water, flesh, life, death, light, darkness, etc. For example, the food which does not perish, but which abides to eternal life. Augustine receives and forwards the invitation of the gospel to think about this image together with the image of the living water of which Jesus told the Samaritan woman to drink, such that she said, give me, Lord, some of this water. Just as the disciples beg him now, Lord, give us this bread always. Can we imagine our, can we imagine our way into these image-laden questions, even if, like the Samaritan woman in Peter, we're not fully sure what this water is or what bread he's talking about. Can we open ourselves to the images? Scripture uses the images to unsettle our preconceived notions. It's the Spirit's unsettling of them, and Augustine as preacher is the agent of the Spirit's unsettling. So the second point, is that Augustine the preacher doesn't consider himself to be the master of the word, as it were, but as a co-seeker with his listeners. All students of the true and only teacher, the Lord Jesus. Augustine the preacher notices how scripture seems to pose problems for us to think about. For instance, with the hearer, he notices that in the gospel, <clears throat> Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh, and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you shall not have life in you. But then, just 10 verses later, in Hill's spirited translation, he says, the spirit gives life, the flesh is of no avail. 
The flesh is of no use at all. <clears throat> Wait a minute, you might think. I did not see that coming. Augustine accepts that scripture is using these images in a jarring man manner to continue to unsettle us, to break down the closed circle of our pride. And he allows himself to be included. He too adopts the position of faith-seeking understanding. <clears throat> and he imagines himself and the hearer in a conversation with the Lord. Let us say to them, he says to his, to his listeners, he puts up with us, you see, as longing to know, not as contradicting him. <clears throat> Dear Lord, good teacher, how is the flesh no use at all? When you yourself have just said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you shall not have life in you. He persists asking with us, is life no use at all then? Another example of this is the way in which Augustine offers an interpretation of Psalm 35 using a series of questions that anticipate the questions of his hearers and makes them his own, which I'm not gonna read. It's in, in Sermon 25. Okay, to the third point. <clears throat> well, what about the flesh is no use at all? <clears throat> Excuse me. After such insistence about the value of eating his flesh and blood, just verses earlier, And on the terms of the gospel itself, didn't the word become flesh? Then how useless could it be? Scripture poses the problem, and note that it's on the level of image. The question, what is flesh? What is flesh is implied. It's certainly corporeal reality, body, but that is not simply matter. When Jesus said, the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world, he did not begin to cut off his fingers, and hand them around as hors d'oeuvres. Nor is the Eucharist the sacrament of that. Some of our Catholic listeners may be familiar with a certain kind of well-meaning but misguided defense of transubstantiation, which regards it in effect as a doctrine of miraculous physical transformation from the matter of bread to the matter of flesh. Only that miraculous physical change is invisible as though the wonder of the Eucharist were that, except in appearance, the bread was physically changed into a refined, refined kind of hamburger that still looked like bread, but miraculously and invisibly took the place of bread in everything except appearance. But hamburger saves no one. The flesh is of no use at all. Augustine points us to a truer understanding of this doctrine, again in Hill's inimitable translation, so what is this then? The flesh is no use at all. It's no use at all, but in the way those people understood it, they understood flesh as that which is torn off a cadaver or sold at the butchers, not as that which is animated by the spirit. Or again, they took Jesus's words and we take them that way, I think. To mean that Jesus was able, or even that he was preparing to slice up the flesh with, with the word was clothed and to distribute it to those who believed in him, I'm imagining as hors d'oeuvres. The point is that flesh is not a thing extrinsic to oneself, such that to give it for the life of the world is to give the world a special piece of meat. But rather what Jesus meant in saying he was giving his flesh was that by giving his flesh to be crucified, he was giving himself for the life of the world. As Augustine puts it, what we have believed and come to know with Peter is that you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
that you are eternal life itself and do not give anything in your flesh and blood other than what you are. In other words, the incarnation, the word made flesh, is a kind of sacrament, the primordial sacrament of the giving up of the eternal life of the eternal word in and to our world. The word is not just hanging around in a meat locker as incarnate, but as Augustine emphasizes, reading all the way to the end of John 1.14, is present as dwelling among us, as embodied social presence, a presence of himself as eternal life in the embodied life of language and culture, of living, and in the end of dying. A true social presence that is all self-gift, all the way down, which not even death could stop, and which therefore changes the terms, as it were, of our social life, of our communion as human beings. The Eucharist is then a sacrament of a sacrament. Yes, of the body and blood of the incarnate Christ, of his flesh, which represents and is his unreserved gift of himself in love for the life of the world. Looks like flesh is so much more than we had imagined it to be. And finally, fourth, <clears throat> what's the point of the Eucharist, of this sacrament of a sacrament, according to Augustine? It is, we could say, I think, to make the church itself a kind of sacrament of the new terms of human communion, which the Paschal mystery affects. In homily 26, Augustine takes up the verse, this is the bread which has come down from heaven, as a reference to the incarnation recalling the prologue of the gospel, <clears throat> explains that the words becoming flesh meant that eternal life took on death. Eternal life was willing to die, but to die in what is yours, ours, not in what is his. He took from you, from us, that in which he would die for you. I mean, he took flesh from human beings, but not like human beings take, but not the way human beings take on flesh. Although not fully explained here, Augustine is alluding to a point made frequently elsewhere, namely that though we come into specifically mortal flesh as a result of sin, Christ, who could have taken on flesh immune to death, came into specifically mortal flesh out of love. He did it in order to be with us there in mortality, to be communion with us even in death, a companion in death, just there where we thought we could have no companion. Christ taking on a flesh transforms the bond we have to each other in the flesh, ultimately a bond in death, into a bond or communion in his companionship, his love, his self-gift, his life, his flesh. He is eternal life, Augustine says, and he gave eternal life to the flesh he took on. He came to die, but on the third day he rose again, between the word taking flesh and flesh rising again, death has been swallowed up. The Eucharist, because it is the body and blood of Christ as being given, is the sacrament of incorporation into the communion Christ establishes in and by his flesh. It makes us into his members, into his body, the church. O sacrament of piety, O sign of unity, O bond of charity, he says, so lyrically image-laden as to defy easy conceptual formulation. To take it in reverse, O bond of charity, the bond that unites the church is charity, 
but not our charity first and foremost, but the charity of the incarnation, which the Holy Spirit pours into us as members of a communion, which we have through the Eucharist, O sign of unity, since by eating and drinking, we receive the unity of his body and blood, the unity of one Trinitarian person who gave himself, that we should be in his body under him as our head, among his members, eating his flesh, nor forsaking his unity, Augustine says. We being many are one bread, one body. The church, O sacrament of piety, of true self-giving worship. Let us not shudder at the makeup of its members. That is mixed company, advises Augustine. The point is what binds the church is not in the first instance our vice or virtue or any work of ours, but the grace, the love, the self-gift or sacrifice that the Eucharist offers for the eating and the drinking of those who believe. The church formed as a sacrament of that love by which God so loved the world is called to be in the world as a Eucharistic presence, proclaiming by its very existence, by the lives of its members, and the words of its preachers, that hope for eternal life, which does not come from ourselves, but from the word of God. It is thus that the martyr Lawrence had eaten and drunk well. So thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, and both of you, uh, you know, just jumped right into the substance of it and it's really delightful both of you brought up themes like rowan you said um uh like it's about now it's about what god is doing now and and i just want a little clarification because you know we I often hear sermons about what God's doing now, and it's usually like something about the spirit of the age. Like this is what God's kind of doing in our time. And just want to clarify, am I am I understanding you correctly? That that's not really what you're talking about. You're talking about now, meaning right now, right? Like I'm listening to a sermon, I'm thinking about the scripture, and there's an encounter, a transformation, uh, something is happening like right, right, right now. And I need to pay attention to that moment. Am I am I hearing that? Or am I hearing you right? Yes, yes, you are very much so. Um, I think what what we have to remember is that Augustine is is a liturgical preacher, um, and that doesn't mean that he preaches about the liturgy. Um, I can't think of many more boring things than that. But that he <laughs> preaches in the liturgy, and his preaching is a liturgical activity. Now, that's technical language, if you like, but what it boils down to is he assumes that people are there because they expect the act of God to be at work upon them in the entire event, in the gathering, in the listening to scripture and homily, in the sharing of bread and wine. People are there because that's what they expect. And, you know, in answer to the question, well, the evidence is definitely that they listened. They came, they responded, sometimes. Augustine can comment on the fact that they're not looking very responsive. I imagine there were glazed eyes in Hippo, as there are in so many of our congregations. But they came. And in a culture where probably oral communication was still much more um, taken for granted than it is for most of us, they wouldn't know how to listen. Now, I take the point that these days we probably don't know how to listen in quite the same way. 
But I'm very, very wary of any suggestion that somehow we need to, um, oh, I don't know, to water it all down, to thin it out for a congregation and assume that they won't want to grow or won't want to be stretched. My experience over what's now over 40 years of ordained ministry in pastoral settings ranging from not very literate council estates through to universities is that actually people do want to learn and they're grateful to have their horizons enlarged so that to, to treat the sermon as opening a door into something larger is crucial here. If somehow people come away from a sermon feeling simply reaffirmed in what they think they already know, or just having listened to a number of boxes being ticked, whether those are supposedly liberal or conservative boxes, then something's, something's gone wrong. That's where the desire comes in. People should come away from a sermon with an appetite, not just for Sunday dinner, but for something much more substantial and much more stretching. So I think there's a role for some ambition here, some theological ambition. And what you say reminds me of how uh, Augustine frequently talks about Monica, in that, as we know, Monica's, uh, he, as Augustine points out, she didn't benefit from uh, the kind of education that he did, but he says she she was baptized and she uh, was instructed in the church and came in her own way to the the best truths by some other path than study and he seems to have had a a great respect for the monicas of his own congregation and never wanted to insult them by thinking that he's not going to talk to them about the, the full substance I, I think that's absolutely right and again it comes back to this basic conviction in the liturgical act in the gathering of christians to do what christians do together you expect god to be at work in that gathering in that context and if you expect that, you can also, I think, step back just a little bit from the anxiety we all feel mm. in preaching. George Herbert, a great Anglican priest and poet, says somewhere in his uh, meditations on the priestly life that there have to be moments when literally or metaphorically, the preacher steps back and says, says to God, look, would you mind making this point to them, <laughs> to the congregation? And I think sometimes that is what we're driven to. Um, I mean, church sure would be a lot more exciting if you came with the expectation that what's happening, the thing that's really happening, is happening right now. It does sound like that would be and great. That, that, that also connects very closely with what John was saying right at the start about introducing people to the world of imagery. And I'd love to hear more from John on that, because I think that's absolutely right. We, we are confronted here with, with a, an extraordinary, rich, complex set of images, dramas. And when you go to see, oh, I don't know, whether it's a Shakespeare play or something else, you don't expect somebody to step in front of the curtain saying, well, this is all going to be a bit difficult for you, so I'll just give you the gist. Um, you know, Romeo falls in love with Juliet, but it doesn't end very well. Okay, so now I can go home. <laughs> no, you want to spend the time digesting. But sorry, John, I'd love to hear more. 
Now that, yeah, John, just to add to that, because yeah, it's exactly right. Your point is so well taken because we, we've uh, to kind of whatever kind of Christian we are, somehow we've become such literalists and that we somehow kind of run away from the images and we, uh, we want it all to add up into some logical, rather abstract whole. And exactly like you were saying, like to avoid the abstraction and and get down to the images, you're 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 so so right. But you uh, it, you know, we are embarrassed by metaphors and images a bit, or afraid of them. I'm not I'm not sure, but they I loved how you talked about how these are just essential to the to the whole the whole the whole matter. And can you like one thing? Augustine seems to be fine with. Uh, hey, this is my this is how I'm. I'm I'm reading this today. It's not the only meaning, and I'm not claiming to understand the whole thing. And he's very kind to uh, amateur readers who are not instructed, but they come to church and and they have some meaning. Like he'll talk about it in a sermon, and you can tell it's not really Augustine's preferred meaning. But he he says that like, well, that's okay, especially if it leads towards love. And it means something to you, but you, maybe you should look, spend a little more time with it and find even a yet one more meaning. And, and I, I don't know, why is that okay for Augustine? And, and why, I don't know, why are we kind of so uncomfortable with that it can mean more than the text can mean more than one thing to different people at different times? Because we, you know, we, you go to seminary to learn the one right meaning <laughs> that you teach to everybody. And then, and you give sermons on it. And when somebody says, like, this is what I think the text spoke to me, you tell them, oh, that's not what it means. <laughs> and, and that's not what Augustine does. And that's certainly not what you're saying preachers should do. So, so yeah, please, we'd love to hear some more. Um, yeah, I, I'm not a preacher, so I, I don't speak with any authority here. So I'm at a disadvantage a little bit. I am a teacher, and I have stepped back and said that little prayer, I have to say. <laughs> Um, that, that Rowan mentioned. Um, I think that, you know, did, did, did people listen to these? Did they work? Um, Augustine's own report about it is that you, you really can't tell if you've, you've um, communicated if they clap for you. Um, so apparently they clapped all the time. Um, mm -hmm. You can only tell if they cry. Um, okay. That's a pretty high bar. And, but Augustine is indicating, therefore, that this was an effect of the sermon sometimes, which some of these seem impossibly long. But I think if we, you know, maybe just keep in mind that what he thought a sermon should do, mm -hmm. you know, the three elements, it should inform, and it should please, and it should move. And different sermons might emphasize different moments. But I think with regard to the, to the pleasing part, the 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 um the communication of a kind of sweetness or a pleasure yeah actually um that's where the scriptural images come in i think often because he he believes that the images are appealing he believes that the spirit has proposed them and that if we re and, and and so that to to rely to rely on these images and to be able to the preacher work with them and repropose them so that the beauty of them shines out and so that we're attracted to the to the um so that we feel the the delight in the images i think that's maybe one one key to the the um 
the idea of pleasing. And also, I think the more you read Augustine's sermons, the more you find his more playful um, you know, aspects. Like when he asked these questions back and forth, some of them are kind of, you know, they're they're almost a little bit outrageous, we might think, when he says um to his congregation, well, you think that you know going to heaven is boring because you're not going to be able to eat, you're not going to be able to have sex. Um, what are we going to be doing? Singing hallelujah all the time? Yeah, that's a lot of fun. Um, so so he, and then he'll reply to that, um, sort of making fun of himself at the same time. So there's a kind of playfulness, I think, that contributes to all of at least to pleasing and to moving. I don't know. That's from a non-preacher, sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, hey, but you, you also raised something really important that like one of the things when you're reading the sermons, it's a little hard to figure out how they're, what, how their paragraphs are connected to each other. Like, cause he, he doesn't follow some like three-point logical structure. It's not a syllogism. And, you know, some, I think, uh, scholars not quite rightly have, talked about them as kind of rambling and and they they seem to me quite intentional and but the thing but the only way to see that is both of you brought up his questioning uh you know our our contemporary sermons tend to have answers because as a preacher you feel compelled to give answers that's part of the anxiety and the pressure because i mean it's a lot to ask to say that I need to have the answer to all sorts of problems and that to think that I would give a sermon that's an answer is super hard. And Augustine largely does not do that. He, uh, he, he has these just endless series of questions and the questions seem to hold it together. Like here, I'll just, here's one little passage. This is from the trans, you know, the, the homilies on John on, this is 38. He says, Will I dare to question the Lord? Well, listen to me questioning, not arguing, seeking more than assuming I know the answer, learning rather than teaching. And in fact, in me or through me, you too should be raising questions. The Lord who is everywhere is also close by. May he listen to the affection of his questioners and give them understanding. And then in homily 25, he says, I beg you together, let us knock. Like he loves this image of knocking on the door of scripture for it to open. Let us knock. May something come to us to feed us in accord with that which delights us. And you know, we could go on and on and on. Yeah, I, I think what you say there about the pressure to give answers is, is a very, very significant point because, yes, we are under, under pressure to do that. But I suspect there are quite a lot of contexts in which the pastor may be giving answers or trying to, but perhaps the sermon isn't the only or the most important one. In that particular context, to go back to what I was saying earlier and what I think John has wonderfully filled out, um, so there's an invitation. Here is something, here is a new world to understand. Um, and there's a lot of exploring to be done. And you won't get to the end of it at all quickly. So yes, there is every every reason to take time with the words, every reason to take a few risks with the interpretation, um, the, the slightly fanciful bits of interpretation which we've already touched on, mm -hmm. the numerical symbolism. Um, and Augustine, with a little bit of a smile on his face in his treatise on Christian teaching, um, 
says, for some reason, um, if I think of the, um, the, the teeth of the beloved in the Song of Songs being um, images of a flock of sheep or whatever, it, it, it pleases me. You know, I, I like that. It, yeah, that's, we can imagine him in the 21st century saying, that's really cool. <laughs> it's, it's something that really touches my imagination. Not quite sure what it all means, but hey, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not dull. And to give a sense of that new landscape of scripture, what Karl Barth famously called the strange new world of the Bible. That's part of what preaching is about. Because after all, if, if the Bible is meant first and foremost to be a book of answers, it's a very inefficient one. It's as if the, the point of the written word is not the provision of lots of solutions to problems, but the reality of a world in which God is to be encountered at every turn. That, you know, that's a bigger job. Um, so you know, both of you talked about you know, listening in different ways, and Augustine talks about it a lot. And, uh, and I, I'm, like he talks about preaching for the preacher, the preacher's prime initial job is to listen more than speak. And that, uh, you know, like rather than answers in a, some, in some way, the art of listening to sermons is its own spiritual exercise where you're cultivating a kind of attentiveness. Uh, and, and he has this funny little phrase that shows up all over where he says like, well, what are you paying attention to? And he describes that who you really should be listening to isn't the preacher, but it's to this inner teacher. So I'm gonna, here's a sentence of his. This is from the Sermons on John number 20. He says, for we have Christ, the teacher within. When anything comes to your ears from my lips that you are not able to take in, turn within your heart to the one who is both teaching me what to say and distributing understanding among you as he thinks fit. He knows what he has to give and who he is giving it to, and so will present himself to the one who asks and open to the one who knocks. Uh, I mean, so it seems like he does this over and over again throughout his whole life, and it does seem that, you know, contemporary preachers, you know, we kind of think, it's a performance, and we're 100% responsible for its success. And we really admire preachers. Like, there are like celebrities who can give that performance uh, on a stage, and it's electrifying, and it, it would work even if you didn't believe, because it's just, it has some sort of extraordinary charisma about it. And then we kind of feel bad about not being able to do that. And, and so it's really hard. And, and, it would, and he seems to have said, like, hey, most of the responsibility for the success of the sermon is, is, is well, all the responsibility really is, is the inner teacher. It's Christ who's speaking to you. And you're supposed to listen to that. And Christ uses my words as a way for you to listen. But if the sermon bombs it's probably not my fault. <laughs> you know, it's probably somewhere in there, something hasn't worked in terms of, of the heart being able to hear what it needs to hear on that day. I think I'd want to relate that to, again, the liturgical setting, because mm -hmm. we come expecting Christ to be at work. So you know, when we're listening to a, a dreary or bad or muddled sermon, 
uh, let alone when we're preaching one, you know, <laughs> when we're listening to one, mm-hmm. then the question in our hearts must be, so what, what exactly is this bringing into focus for me, even negatively? Mm-hmm. And I've, I've occasionally, when I've been taking retreats or something like that, said to retreatants, look, if my addresses are um, getting in the way, or if, if they're not making sense to you, just, just try to open your hearts a bit more deeply. And, and if I'm not making sense, let God make sense. But don't, don't shut up. Don't shut the doors on that, because it's God who will make the sense in the long run. Hmm. And, then, and that kind of raises the question in a way of who Augustine is to these people. Rowan, we had this one question that was like, how has your experience in ministry affected your reading of Augustine? And, and so, because you've been, a, you're, you're a man of many roles, and so is Augustine in this role of, of preacher to, or you know, rector or bishop or to people. Like, like how does... How does Augustine seem to think about it, and and how has it affected you as reading him? Oh, well, I could say how long have you got, because um, John talked about Augustine being the theological love of his life, something like that for me as well. Um, And in perhaps two respects especially, Augustine has led and inspired and shaped what I've tried to be as a pastor. I think one is this deep conviction that what happens in the church is is God. You know, it's not something we put together, cobble together, stitch together out of our triumphs and our successes. It's invitation all, all the way down. And whatever one says about aspects of Augustine's theology where that seems to take him in some odd and not very productive directions, especially in some of the later controversies. Nonetheless, I, I see what he's after. I see this, you know, this intense insistence that the more we are focused on what, what we can achieve, whether as individual pastors or as a church collectively, the less we leave the doors open for God, the more we forget what the church really is. So that's that's been very fundamental for me. The second thing, I think, is that that sense which from the confessions onwards you find in Augustine, who I am is always who I am when God speaks to me most deeply. What is most real in me is what God addresses and what listens to that address. And that takes quite a while to to get to it. You have to dig down beneath lots of layers of self-deception to get to that point. And I think he knew that. Mm-hmm. So both in terms of the, the nature of the church and in terms of the nature of the kind of distance you need on your performance as a pastor, mm-hmm. the skepticism about yourself that you need as a pastor, I find Augustine life-giving. Uh, it, it reminds and, me of something. Oh, go ahead. No. I think John wants to come in. Oh, yeah. I just want to say really briefly, um, as a professional listener to homilies, <laughs> even though I'm not a, I don't give homilies, um, I'm thinking still it's about something Rowan said a, a, just a little while back about the, um, about the pleasure of the image. 
that Augustine that Augustine mentions in in on Christian teaching. Um, I think that 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 pleasure is intended, right, by God. That hmm. that that's intended to be to land. And I think sometimes the preacher could lose confidence in Scripture um, as having that kind of power, which the, the, the preacher doesn't control exactly how it's going to land, but not to lose confidence that proposing the image and working with it will land somehow. I, I have the experience as a professional listener of homilies um, that I often listen to the, the Scripture read, for example, the story of the Pharisee and the, and the, and the publican, and the story is so moving. Um, it just it just grips you. But then the preacher, instead of having faith in the moving character of that story and being able to, I don't know, move with it, and instead tells a story from his from his from his own childhood or something, um, which somehow always strikes me as, wait a minute, you, I want that. I want that other thing. Um, I was there, um, and. Now somehow the the energy of the scripture is de, 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 depleted or diffused by the anecdote. I don't mind anecdotes once in a while, but somehow when it's a when it seems like a loss of confidence that the scripture does speak and that the images are from the Holy Spirit, and to to have them land is to have the Spirit land in somebody's heart. Um, I think that's that's what Augustine is so good at. I think. He has confidence that the scripture offers pleasure, that the scripture is moving, and that it will have its effect. Ex opere operato. No. <laughs> if you, if you, if you, if you, if that's your aim to 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 assist in that or something like that, don't lose confidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's great. It's great, John. It's like we we write like so many papers on what a text means, but then when you get in the pulpit, it's less about that and more about what, what the scripture does. And we don't really talk about that. And he, he will, he will say like, are you moved? Uh, And, and it is possible to preach. And then someone's response is tears and it's not tears at, Wow, that was a really smart interpretation. He, I think he really finally got the meaning. It's not that. It's it's some deep being touched in some transformative moment, and it's some sort of encounter, and the tears come forward, and that and that's the scripture doing something. Uh, Rowan, in our prior conversation, when you said that you thought that uh, people part of why people listened to him was that they knew he uh, loved them. Yes, yes. I, I think that's, that's really crucial because preaching is, preaching is nothing if it's not an act of love. Mm-hmm. Sharing the good news is an act of love. And if what's coming from the pulpit doesn't, in some sense, enhance that sense that you are loved, it's failing. Now, that's, that's very different from making you feel better or feel more comfortable about yourself. But what is it actually to feel you're loved? And I think people can forgive an awful lot in preachers if they sense that they're loved. I've, I've heard people preaching where you know, the sermon is not you know, perhaps everything I would hope for from a sermon, but there's manifestly a relationship there 
which is trusted and relied on. And people know to make alliances and, if you like, aim off because they're confident of that. And I think that's why it's quite, quite difficult um, for preachers who don't have a regular congregational setting. It's been part of my experience, to be honest, and the experience of many bishops. The great thing about Augustine, of course, in, in those days when people knew what bishops were for, um, <laughs> there he was thinking out loud about the Bible every morning in church. And that's not a bad discipline for a bishop. <laughs> and I think part of why he doesn't need that anecdote to start with is because he's already talking to people who knows who know that, that he loves them and he's involved in their lives. Like just, you get these, one of the little things you do find out reading the sermons is he, he complains sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad he never got around to editing them because I'm pretty sure he would have crossed off his, his complaining. And, but like, here, here's one, like this is from the, in the same collection we're reading of 41. He says, Sometimes those who have been enslaved wrongfully and dishonestly find refuge in a church because they are free persons being held in slavery. And they appeal to the bishop. And if he does not go to endless trouble to put right this suppression of freedom, he's considered merciless. So you can imagine Augustine dropping everything and, and, uh, and advocating to, to all, all with the powers that be on behalf of this wrongfully enslaved person. Um, and here's, a, here's one that's the real complaining. This is from 25. Someone has business, he seeks yeah. the intervention of the clergy. Someone else is pursued by a man stronger than he is, and he takes refuge in the church. Another wants, to wants a plea made to someone with whom he has little influence. Rarely does anyone seek Jesus for the sake of Jesus. <laughs> uh, he would have crossed that out, but he didn't, and he, he, he said it. But it shows it shows how deeply involved he is in the lives of his congregation, and that even with his complaining, he's he's there, and it's out, and their experience of it is is love, and uh, and that 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 yeah, that's a just a key part here. Yeah, John. But also, I think that um, you know what you referred to earlier—that sometimes the sermons seem to us to be meandering. Um, I think that's part of what you both have been talking about, namely that um, I, Augustine is, I mean, you, can almost, you can almost project the audience because some of that so-called meandering has got to be in response to, I think, what he's sensing or what he's seeing so that it's a living, it's a, it's a living, it's a moment of a living relationship being transacted in the present time, like Rowan was saying earlier, mm -hmm. um, which means that the preacher could change course or could move on to something, could um, re in reaction to what he sees, so that there's a there's there's two there's two parties here. Hi, um, I'm Jim Wetzel, the director of the Augustinian Institute. John, this is in some way a response to your opening remarks. I've always, in the years I've known you, read you, studied you, you, you always strike me as somebody who is anxious to take exegetical difficulties head on. And since this next question and answer session is about some of the, the, the difficult parts of John, I would like to sort of start with uh, my sense of one of them. And I wanna ask you about um, 
the, the hard saying um, in John 6, uh, verses 54 to 56, um, we hear Jesus say, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood true drink, and those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. We're told in line in verse 60 that many of those who were listening, therefore not as enemies, but as disciples said, this is a hard saying. Uh, who can listen to it? Uh, I looked at Augustine's sermon, uh, uh, homily 26, uh, where he begins, where he discusses the hard saying. Uh, and he emphasizes that eternal life has to do with resurrected life and that um, consuming Jesus has some play out in the way that a, that a community, a, the individuals are brought together in a community. And Augustine says that the key to this idea, this rather harsh idea that we are to eat the flesh of, of Christ and drink his blood, is that we need to bring that together with abiding in Christ and having Christ abide in us. My question, John and Rowan, I'm certainly not excluding you. I, I expect you to, to help John out on this one. Um, uh, the, in, the image of abiding is an image of love. I abide with you, you abide with me. Uh, it sounds simple, but it's one of the more miraculous things that happens in human experience. The image of eating flesh and drinking blood is an image of consumption. So my question to you both, but, but John, you started off talking about this. Um, how are we to understand the framing of an image of love, the abiding, within an image of consumption? Consumption seems to be problematic in human life. So it seems an odd thing, I think, to frame love with eating flesh and drinking blood. And I, I, I tried to get some help from Augustine, but I, I just couldn't find it. But, I, but I'm sure you can help me. Gosh, you ask all the easy questions. Um, so but I, I, th I think Augustine does recognize a pro there's a problem here, right? He recognizes that this is a hard saying. Uh, and you and he, and he think that it, that the scripture itself um, presents, you might say, a mitigation of it when Jesus says the flesh is of the flesh is of no use. So that that's a kind of unsettling. So that the um, the hard saying, you might say, it is a hard saying, and it's meant in itself to unsettle us. But then you get this sort of mitigation which seems to be a complete unsaying of the hard saying um the flesh is of no avail so why bother to eat it and drink it and i think that the way i look at it is that jesus um jesus is offering offering something right the the bread that i will give is my flesh that i will give is my flesh for the life of the world and so there's a way in which um, the context for the saying about eating and drinking is in the context of a gift of love. Uh, and that Jesus says it's real food and it's real drink. But what is real food and real drink? Um, it's, it's, it, it's, it's not, for Augustine and for the Bible, I think he's saying, um, blood doesn't save us. It's just a liquid. There's no... There's nothing in it that that um, that's magic, and neither does flesh. Flesh doesn't save us. There's nothing in it that's just because it's flesh. Um, it's in fact that 
um, that the, the, the flesh and blood of Jesus as given is himself. And so he's giving himself. And to emphasize the way in which, um, and so then, you know, to, to talk about the way in which this is, this is received, um, the language of eating has to take into account, Augustine says, the way in which what he's talking about is not cutting his fingers off and giving them to us. Um, that's a misunderstanding of the text. We know that because the text invites us to take a second look, to think again. The flesh is of no avail or of no use, as Hill translates it. Um, and so, you have you 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 have to you have to find your way between those two things, so that you are in receiving the Eucharist in eating the bread and drinking the blood, eating the eating the um, eating the flesh and drinking the blood is an act of eating, but it's also an act of, of receiving a gift and of, of that gift making you into something else, making you into somebody else's flesh, making you into, so you, you eat the flesh, but you don't make Jesus into your flesh, but you get made into his flesh, into his body, which is not just a piece of meat either, but which is a, um, which is a, which is a communion in love, in the love that was enacted in that flesh. So, I think I think it is hard to reduce it conceptually, but the images ask us to think on a level which puts question marks over all of them, um, so that we are so the images finally break break into our pride. Um, and hopefully move us to eat and drink, as he says, um, as believers, and not, not simply um, not simply, not simply physically, right? There's an act of self-expression in that eating and drinking and receiving an act of self-expression in the um, in in the in the words being made flesh and available as bread. I don't know. That's not a very clear answer. Um, but I think it's. I I I, I think the I, I think the key is the hard saying, which is a hard saying, is not left alone, um, unmitigated, and neither is the other one allowed. Um, that the. The flesh is of no avail. That's not left alone either. That's a kind of a hard saying if you think the word became flesh. So that's the, the kind of way in which spirit is, is the only value. We might come into you know, the process thinking that it's only the spirit that's important. Well, um, that, that's, that's qualified too. I don't know. It's all yeah. about... Uh, uh, Jim's question is, in fact, uh, a version of questions that we got from many of our preachers on John, who uh, I think, speaking out of their real experience, said that they really struggle preaching this because it doesn't have as much narrative to carry along as, as some of the, like Mark. Uh, it has these discourses, but in these discourses, there are these stark juxtapositions that are really tough. I hadn't really quite thought 
of abiding versus consumption, but it's exact. It, for sure, it's one of them, and they are. That's a harsh, tough ox juxtaposition. Just as flesh and spirit, darkness and light, uh, in and out is very strong in this gospel. When uh, you know Judas goes out, he's out, uh, and there's very many of these things. And somehow, the world and John can become a world of fragmentation where things are pulling apart in a terrifying way. Uh, and, uh, but somehow the whole gospel is about the reconciliation and redemption of things that in unity of things that are pulling apart. And, and so the preachers are really stuck here uh, without maybe not as much help from John as they want. And yet, and yet the, somehow they, there's got to be some way that these things are reconciled. Uh, but because we, we don't just want to fragment further. Uh, so anyway, I think Jim's question is very insightful mm. way of articulating what many of our registrants are asking. I, I wonder if I could add a few words there. Okay. Um, first of all, on, on the question of John overall, it's very important that we we don't read the Gospel of John only once, and we never read it for the last time. Like the other bits of Scripture, we continue to read. So there will be moments when something comes into focus with a really jarring intensity, like the conflicts we've been talking about. And of course, something we haven't yet touched on, the, the whole question of what John has to say about the Jews which is one of the most difficult things in preaching the fourth gospel these days. More of that in a moment. But there are moments when those come into focus, and then there are moments when other sayings and other perspectives come more clearly into focus, when what we hear is God so loved the world, or um, what is truth, or you know, these really luminous moments. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it's just important that we go on reading one of the oddities about John's gospel, compared with pretty well all the rest of the New Testament, is indeed that although there's strong narrative there, it's not a single narrative trajectory somehow. Um, narrative is interrupted by these long pauses of reflective and sometimes very complex and controversial, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, meditation and, and polemic. So... It's, it's going to be difficult. Nothing is going to make that easy. But let me just come to the particular question of consumption and abiding. I noticed that in the homily that we were touching on, there are two things that perhaps slightly qualify that rather stark opposition. One is the insistence that the eating is about fellowship. By this food and drink, he wishes that the fellowship of his body and his members be grasped. That fellowship is the Holy Church, etc. So, you know, it's eating and drinking that we do together. And therefore, the, the element, if you like, of eating that's to the foreground here is the social, the communal, the, the shared experience, rather than consumption as such. And that's filled out at the very end of Homily 26. Um, this is the bread which came down from heaven so that we might live by eating it because we cannot have life everlasting from ourselves. We have to eat, 
we can't not eat. We're not that sort of being. We are historical material beings. We need to be nourished. And we need to be nourished in our spirits as much as our bodies. And for that nourishment, which we can't do for ourselves, the food is what we receive from the hand of Christ. So again, not so much consumption as such, but dependence, humility again. Mm -hmm. And all of this passage, for me, resonates with that powerful image in Confessions Book 7, mm -hmm. where Augustine hears God saying, Egochibus grandium, I am the food of, of the grown-up, I'm the food of those who are growing into their maturity. Grow and you will feed on me. And that grow and you will feed is, I think, another of those images we have to sit with, the more we expand in our understanding, the more we are able to be nourished. The more we are nourished, the more we grow. And maturity is not, maturity is not getting to a point where we no longer depend or need to be fed. Quite the contrary. Maturity is when we know where there is food to be had. Another Johannine image where the, the good shepherd shows the sheep where they feed best. So I think there are ways through and around this that make a bit of sense of it. But having touched briefly on that question of the Jews in John, I wonder if John has any wisdom on that, because I know that it is something which, especially these days, is going to, to grate on readers and preachers in a particular way. And Augustine, well, he has a few things to say about it too, but maybe I could see if those wiser than I have things to say. Yeah, I'm not the wiser than you, that's for sure. Um, I don't, I think that, um, yeah, Augustine on the Jews. Um, well, there's a lot of things Augustine says on the Jews that we don't want to repeat, so let's let's concede that. Um, but, let, but also, you can, you can, you can remember, for example, that when Augustine talks about, even in these homilies, how some of the people who ate the manna, you know, were bad men um, and didn't 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 live unto eternal life, but some of them did. Um, when he talks about the grumbling of the Jews, it's it, it was a mixed body, right? The the Jewish people, but it's no different from the church. Like he talks about the church in the same terms as a as a corpus permixtum, a completely mixed mixed company, mixed body, so that the that um, that the language that he uses about the what we could call the mixed body of of israel is is exactly duplicated in the church um and sometimes with more intensity hmm. um and then of course there is you know people talk about augustine's uh, the way in which he will say and has even in i think in, in homily 25 here maybe that the sacraments that existed among the jews mean the same thing as the ones which exist among us now. So there's a kind of continuity and an affirmation, at least of the law and of God's revelation in the law against the Manichaeans or against Marcion even. Hmm. Um, and finally, I remember Michael Signer of blessed memory um, would always say to me, John, as long as the Augustinian doctrine of the Jews prevailed, there were no Jews killed in Europe. Um, there, were no, there were no persecutions. Uh, meaning that Augustine, Augustine thought that um, that the Jews, you know, you could say were an irreducibly prophetic people. You couldn't wash it out of them, even now. 
Uh, he puts it in a kind of snarky way that he says that um, the, we shouldn't kill the Jews because they, they carry the scriptures and therefore they bear witness to their divine origin um, and that we didn't write them. Um, but that is, if you just flip that, there's a resource there, it seems to me, that the Jews are irreducibly prophetic, even now, and that cannot be taken away from them. Yeah. Um, and it seems as though that should be able to leverage something, well, certainly not killing, but more than that. Um, mm -hmm. Though Michael always insisted on that to me, Michael Signer, Rabbi Michael, who would, mm -hmm. that point that as long as the Augustinian doctrine held out until about the 13th century, um, there were no Jews persecuted in Europe. So it's a mixed, very mixed bag. Uh, yeah. And you also have to, you know, gauge him against contemporaries um, who's, who had virtually nothing positive to say, many of them, about contemporary Jews. Um, so there's a partial answer from a not wiser head. Well, um, I can say something about it. Uh, uh, you know, these days, since we have this era of uh, Augustinian studies flourishing, you know, Paula Fredrickson's book, Augustine and the Jews, is, is excellent. And um, at the American Academy of Religion, we're doing a session on Augustine and the Jews this November to work on it with Paula. Uh, and uh, But for preachers particularly, we have preachers, since we're in this session, it's very difficult to, you know, when you have the Jews and uh, to be, uh, to how to, be careful with that. And it seems within the broader gospel, within the images, the Jews often don't stand for you know, what we would understand as our neighbors these days, uh, but more for the world that prefers darkness to light. You know, like in it, and that it's that it there's a there's a depth and a resonance in John itself that is not just flat like Jews. I I, I, mean, I would think, and that you could with care you could. You could do this much like, you know, if you take Pharisees in the Gospels just to refer to Jews, you're going to have a terrible reading of Scripture. Hmm. Uh, you know, the, and it's going to be a bad sermon. Uh, uh, the Pharisees have to have some sort of depth in the human experience. I, I think that's an important perspective, and I, I think I'd very much want to echo what John has said about the the corpus per mixtum thing. Mm -hmm. There, there are passages where Augustine, in effect, says to his congregation, you think this is about the Jews? This is about you. Mm -hmm. And that, that's one of the things that, that, again and again, we have to come back to. Whatever the traditions of reading, which are sometimes toxic, whatever the, the temptations of the surface reading, again and again, we are reminded what we are addressed with is a word of judgment, a word of challenge to us, not to them, whoever them may be. And I think there is in John's gospel that, that element as well. It's, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Well, yes, you can read that if you like in a, an anti-Semitic sense. You can also much more properly read it as addressed to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You are his own to whom he comes and who do not receive. The judgment is for you. And when all said and done about the difficulties of knowing what exactly eudaioi really means, how it should be read in John's Gospel, I think we do have to keep turning it around to, to us as readers. Mm -hmm. we, we are the target for whatever is said there. And that, that has to be borne in mind, I think.
And yes, you're quite right. Put Augustine alongside Chrysostom on the Jews and... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and Rowan, that goes right back to your initial, in your opening remarks, that the sermon should not stray from the encounter right now between the hearer and the preacher and the and Christ that's in, in that moment. And the more it's away from that, it it just weakens it. And and so if you're giving a sermon about someone who isn't even present, then what are you even doing? That it's about it's about that that dialogue. And so just I want to wrap up our conversation on the Eucharist with uh, you know, one of the endearing things about Augustine is in the middle of a tough exegetical moment, he'll look, he'll pause and say, lift up your hearts, like you're, you're not understanding it, you're trapped in the image in, in not really getting it, lift up your hearts. And obviously, the congregation would recognize that as, as the opening of the Eucharistic canon. And so he, he would, uh, and elevating your mind, elevating your hearts, like, and that he'll do that exegetically, but it provides a whole continuity within the liturgy. And uh, in some of his most famous quotes about the Eucharist are, I'd like to get to as a concluding about it, you know, where he says in Sermon 272, be what you see and receive who you are. Or in 228b, so you're beginning to receive what you have also begun to be. Or in our own John 28, 21 sermon, he says, let's congratulate ourselves then and give thanks for having been made not only Christians, but Christ. Hmm. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, the grace of God upon you? Do you grasp that? Be filled with wonder. Rejoice and be glad. We've been made Christ. For if he is the head and we are the members, then he and we are the whole man. Hmm. And, and that that seems to be like, Rowan, one of your books that I think is probably going to be a book in the Christian tradition for the ages is uh, your book, Resurrection. And you wrote in there, this is a long time ago, that uh, the, the crucifixion was meant to be the severing of all relations, which is what the Romans intended it to be. It's an act of humiliation. It's ending some social relationship. And yet somehow there was something different about this death and that it became the source of reconciliation. It's, and I thought that captures the opposites in John so beautifully, like this eating and this meal, like is what Jim brought up was, consumption is the end of a relationship. You're, you're, if you're eating a person, you're done. <laughs> and then, but somehow this, there's something exceptional about this act, because this is a consumption that leads to a biting. And that this is just in the same way that the crucifixion leads to resurrection. Mm-hmm. And that and that this is a this is the experience that we're talking about. And and that in the heady thought that he told his whole congregation that, you know, you are Christ in the world. And 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 rejoice. Do you know that? Do you really know that? Does all of you know that? It seems to be an astonishing uh point here that that mm. is in the end that's that's where the difficult saying and that's the most difficult part of the difficult saying is is when you're left with yourself being uh far more than what you appear to be mm. and and what do you do with that and the, but that's why the saying's difficult because you're because none of us are quite what we think 
Absolutely. And I think it, it's a really important aspect of preaching that we communicate just how extraordinary the truth is that we, we live by. And whether in so many words or not, there have to be moments in preaching where we say, can you really believe this? This, this is more extraordinary than you can imagine. But this is, this is what is true of you and me. Be amazed. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm, I'm still on consumption and abiding. Um, <laughs> um, I'm remembering that my, my student Elizabeth Klein said to me once that, um, that, that, that breastfeeding is a kind of consumption, which is also an abiding. And that Augustine specifically evokes that image um, for, God's, for God's caring love of us maternally. Um, in the beginning of the confessions and yep. and and elsewhere in his in his preaching in his preaching, so um, there's there's another mitigation mm. which is which which ultimately is scriptural. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and so, like the kind of the last thing before we go to final words is uh, you know one of the things like we because we got there with the Eucharist and the joy and the wonder is. You do find that Augustine in the sermons, you have he's far more positive with his congregation than he is in almost any other context. Because he can be like, oh, you know, you get used to disappointment sometimes. And and I and but with his congregation, he's always like, hey, there's joy here. Like here's from number 26 of John John. He says, he says to them, there's a pleasure of the heart. For the one for whom the heavenly bread is sweet. If the poet Virgil, you know, which is kind of funny that he's quoting, he can't help himself. The poet Virgil once, you know, used to say, each one is by his pleasure drawn, not by necessity, but by pleasure, not by obligation, but by delight. How much more strongly should we say that those whose delight is in the truth, whose delight is in the happiness, whose delight is in the justice, whose delight is in eternal life, are drawn to Christ because each of those is Christ. Like, I mean, it's a, you know, Augustinian Christianity of joy in the world uh, that is, I think, incredibly compelling. And you're quite right. It's not what people associate with, with Augustine, is it? They think of him as the, the gloomy doctor of predestination or whatever, mm -hmm. or the, um, the chap who invented original sin. <laughs> Whereas, of course, that was um, that was Adam, or rather, you and me. Um, so, you know, we we do have a very skewed picture. I think here of um, C.S. Lewis, who, of course, was one of the great Augustinians in his way of the twentieth century, and how at the end of the Screwtape Letters, he he has a sort of rant by the devil who's writing these letters, saying <laughs> how how successful. Um, God has been sometimes in concealing the fact that deep down he's a hedonist, says this demon. <laughs> deep down he's it, all this rubbish about asceticism and self-denial. The awful truth is that it's really all about pleasure. And, and that's, you know, that's the great secret. And how awful that is, how, how different it is from the, the noble loneliness of the diabolical vocation. It's a wonderful passage. It's very moving. It's very funny, like so much of C.S. Lewis. And I think Augustine would have seen exactly what all that was about. Mm -hmm. Deep down, he is a hedonist too. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, they will get drunk on the abundance of your house and you will yep. give the drink of the torrent of your delight since with you is the foundation of light, life, which is you know from the homily 25 and the so exciting that song. Well, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time. And uh, oh, well, there's so much more to say, uh, but this has been uh, such a delight. And we, we have time for, for a last sort of parting word from each of us. Uh, and so uh, why don't we we'll go from Rowan to John to me, then to Amber will take us out. Well, thank you. It's It's been a wonderful conversation. I'm so delighted to be able to be alongside John for this exchange. I hope that in this we've managed to convey something of two things. One, simply of Augustine, how to read Augustine as a pastor, a creative, a joyful and an inspiring pastor, not just some distant figure in church history, but also hope that we've conveyed something of preaching itself as a joyful act of sharing invitation, transparency to, to the joy that, that God offers, solidarity with the, the human struggles that God enters into. And perhaps if that does even a little bit to shift some of the, and I rather agree here with Paul, some of the slightly done market culture of preaching that many of us have inherited, I'll be very glad. <laughs> yeah, um, that was a really nice thing to say, Rowan, um, that you're here with me. I'm actually here with you, and that's the honor. And I, um, I'm deeply grateful for that. And also, I meant it when I said I admired your style. And what did I mean by your style that I was trying to imitate? That it, despite the, I don't know, the, the height of scholarly erudition, articulate um, eloquence, there's always the concern to communicate the truth of the gospel to somebody. Um, it's always there. It's the spirit that animates it. And I've received that and benefited from it. And I'm grateful. Um, I'd like to say that, that reading Augustine, like reading scripture, is a little bit like learning a language. Um, you can't just get it at a one-off moment. You, if you keep reading, you start understanding the language, and you start seeing how infused it is with the language of scripture, and you start having confidence yourself, I think, in that language of scripture. Um, I used to... Um, I used to, when I, when I read Augustine or any of the fathers, mentally kind of blot out the scripture passages because that was like, that's not them, that's scripture. <laughs> but, but that's so, re I, 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 I don't do that anymore. I'm chastened because they, they're, they're making the language their own and they're teaching you how to speak it. So it's the most important part in some ways of what the fathers say. So, and the more you understand it on its own terms, learning that language, it seems to me, the more you become able to translate it, which is what we're, what we're here to honor today, actually, is this translation of the, the translated into contemporary terms for somebody who is hungry um, and who wants the bread of life and the water that wells up. Thank you. So it's been an honor to represent our, our uh, 1500 some registered uh, 
or 1,800, I think, registered uh, questioners. And uh, but more of an honor to you know, be here with the two of you, because uh, who I've have studied and learned so much from over the years. And uh, and every time I have any sustained encounter with either of you, uh, I always realize that uh, there's been some part of me that I've held back from, that I've protected in some way from some Christian truth without knowing it. And you uh, so kind of smartly and gently uh, take that protection apart and I can receive more of Christianity than I was able to prior to listening to you. And that's been my experience here uh, just right now uh, with you. And uh, so thank you so much. And I and I trust that our uh, listeners, whether in the um, any of the kind of published or however, whatever versions of this continue forward, uh, will have that that same experience. And I need to let Augustine have his own final words. And there's this book called uh, a great book. Like if you're a preacher and you haven't read his instructing beginners in the faith, it's a it's a marvelous how to book. And uh, and he says that if you're if you're not enjoying preaching, no one's going to enjoy listening to you. And so you have to find the pleasure in the moment, that very moment. And, the, and this is this is how, how he says it. He says, for you, for do we find any pleasure except at love's urging? In murmuring unfinished and mutilated words. And yet people wish to have little children to whom they may speak like this. And for a mother, there is more enjoyment in chewing food into tiny pieces and spitting them into her little son's mouth than in chewing and gulping down large portions herself. Nor should we forget the image of the mother hen. And then he goes on. But find the, find the joy, preachers, just like Augustine says, and uh, follow, follow that, rekindle it. The, uh, after the pandemic, the world, your people need you. And... Augustine's last words in John 21, where he, he always feels like there's more to say, he says, brothers and sisters, let that suffice your graces for the time being, lest what has been already been said be pushed out of your hearts by saying more. Hold on to this, talk about it, go out on fire with zeal, inflame those who are indifferent. Amen. Amen. So go out on fire with zeal. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Rowan. Thank you, John. And thank you, St. Augustine. Pray for us. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast. Enjoy other episodes with Rowan Williams, Marilyn Robinson, Lauren Winner, Presiding Bishop Michael Curry, Stanley Hauerwas, and other thinkers, leaders, and artists on topics to encourage, edify, and entertain church leaders like you. Catch us next Thursday when we take up part two of our series, Should We Embrace Hybrid Church? with Father John Mason Locke. Why not subscribe to the Living Church Podcast right now? You will not miss an episode if you do. This podcast is a ministry of the Living Church Institute, which is a ministry of the Living Church. To find out more about what we offer, free and affordable resources for church leaders, go to livingchurch.org or click the link in the show notes. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it has been good to be with you. Peace. Peace.